Hi, this is Sandy Simpson from Apologetics Coordination Team. Thank you for choosing one of our podcasts, and I hope that you enjoy it and it's a help to you. Okay, well, we'll get started and hope that it's recording okay. Um, so glad you all could be here today. Uh, as you probably know, this is the last chapter on 2 Corinthians, and I'll be proceeding to Ephesians next week, and uh, today we're actually live streaming to my channel, Act TV, because Moriel uh, was uh, uh, blocked again by YouTube, so we can't use that live stream. But he'll be live streaming there and also a couple other places as well. Um, so we're uh, we're gonna go ahead and trust that everything is working here. And uh, glad to have you all here today. Okay. Um, Before I get started with the reading the uh, passage we have today, I want to just relate a, a short story um, that relates to this passage. On September 21st, 1938, a hurricane of monstrous proportions struck the east coast of the United States. William Manchester, writing about it in his book, The Glory and the Dream, says that the great wall of brine struck the beach between Babylon and Pachogi, uh, Long Island, New York, at 2.30 p.m. So, so mighty was the power of the first storm wave that its impact registered on a seismograph in Sitka, Alaska, while the spray carried northward at well over 100 miles an hour, it whitened windows and Montpelier, uh, Vermont. As a torrential 40-foot wave approached, some Long Islanders jumped into cars and raced inland. No one knows precisely how many lost that race for their lives, but the survivors later estimated that they had to keep the speedometer over 50 miles an hour all the way. Now, for some reason, the meteorologists who should have known what was coming and should have warned the public seemed strangely blind to the impending disaster. Either they ignored their instruments or simply couldn't believe them. And of course, if the forecasters were blind, the public was too. Among the striking stories which later came to light, says Manchester, was the experience of a Long Islander who had bought a barometer a few days earlier in a New York store. It arrived in the morning post September 21st and to his annoyance, the needle pointed below 29 where the dial read hurricanes and tornadoes. He shook it and banged it against the wall, but the needle wouldn't budge. Indignant, he repacked it, drove to the post office and mailed it back. While he was gone, his house blew away. You know, that's the way we are. 
If we can't cope with the forecast, we blame the barometer, or we ignore it, or we throw it away. Well, this story illustrates what people often do. It was what some at Corinth were doing with Paul. They blamed him when they should have been testing themselves and listening to Paul's warnings. As it says in the story, when people cannot cope with the warning, they blame the person that warned them. There's another saying that we've often used, if you can't kill the message, kill the messenger. And, you know, uh, Jacob and I run into this all the time. People don't want to deal with facts these days, so instead they try to destroy the character of the messenger. And this is what's happening right now in politics. Uh, you know, with protests over Biden's policies, etc. Instead of truly listening to the concerns of people, the politicians are acting like those protesting are crazy or being paid to go out and protest. Well, Paul starts off his letter like this. <clears throat> Verse 1. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any others since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lived by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. Paul was going to visit the Corinthian church for the third time. He quotes Jesus in Matthew 18.16, where Jesus was referring to Deuteronomy 19.15, where it states, One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. You know, this is still part of the law in many countries in court. You can't just take the word of one person against another to establish the truth in a matter. If you have two or three witnesses, then you have, a, have much more assurance that the truth is being told. There were many witnesses to what Paul had written and told the church at Corinth in person. In this final chapter, he tells them that he's going to warn them again just he did, as he did on his second visit. He, wants, he wanted to repeat his warning to them before he, he, came, he came, so that if all possible, he would not have to rebuke them in person. When he comes, he warns them that he will rebuke those who have sinned and not repented. It's likely he would tell them to leave the church. Paul was Christ's representative. And he was demonstrating the principle that he wrote in his first letter, that God judges those outside the church, and we are to judge those inside. 1 Corinthians 5, 12-13. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. 
This is uh, something that I held up as a guiding principle on my website. I don't deal as much with issues of politics and things in the world. I mainly deal with what's going on inside the churches. Because that's what we're supposed to be focusing on anyway. This principle harkens back to the Old Testament, also in Deuteronomy 17.7, 1919, 2121, 22-21, and 24, and 24-7. Israel was to take responsibility for purging the evil in their nation. God would take care of judging the heathen, but the Jews were to clean their own house. This is a principle that's been all but lost today. This is why so many churches are weak and open to being deceived. God's not weak, but he's powerful in true churches. Though Jesus Christ was crucified in weakness, he's alive in the power of God. In the same way, we are weak, but he is strong. We live in his power. Paul was living in that power in order to serve the early church. Moving on to verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we're weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Now, it's not a bad thing to examine ourselves to be sure we're in the faith. If we continue to sin and disobey the Lord, you know what? We better test ourselves. Those who continue to practice sin while calling themselves followers of Christ are not following Christ. 1 John 2, 29, if you know, how, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. 1 John 3, 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And on to verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And 1 John 3.10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 
Now, the reason I like the NASB translation in 1 John is that it makes clear the difference between a Christian sinning, which we do, and a person who practices sin. As a Christian, our new goal is to practice righteousness. In other words, our direction is toward righteousness, not back to sin. As an unbeliever, we practiced or we rehearsed sin over and over. But when we were born again, God changed our hearts and we began to obey him and practice righteousness. If a person who claims to be a Christian continues to live in sin, particularly what I call lifestyle sin, then they're likely not born again. This is what Paul's talking about when he told certain Corinthian Christians that if they continued in unrepentant sin, they better check to see if they're born again Christians and not just playing at Christianity. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that many people today who go to church and tell people they're Christians are not really born again. Why? Because they continue practicing sin. You know, when you practice something, you usually get better at it. Some Corinthians were questioning Paul's status in Christ because he'd come down on them so hard. But the fact was that Paul was being obedient while many of them were not. They needed to pass the test of faith. Paul couldn't do anything other than speak the truth to them, and he had proven that he obeyed the Lord in this, even though some were offended. You know, when you speak the truth, sometimes people will be offended. True believers will not, but false brethren will take offense. The Lord gave Paul his authority. With that authority, Paul's purpose, which was very evident, was to build up the church, not tear it down. The fact that some in Corinth had forgotten that shows that they were off track. Paul was hoping they would get back on track before he came a third time. And finally, Paul gives his final greetings. Verse 11. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be, one of, be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So Paul gives his final greetings and his goal for them was to spur them on to perfection. He hoped that he would not have to discipline them again, but that they would take matters into their own hands and deal with the problems he had already laid out in 1 Corinthians. So he asked them a final time to listen to his appeal. The way to work toward perfection is to be of one mind. They had allowed themselves to have factions. And you know what? That's not a good thing in a church. They needed to learn to live in peace with one another and follow what Paul was saying, what the Lord was saying to them. If they did this, then the God of love and peace would be with them. Poole comments on the, the greet one another with a holy kiss in this way. 
It was an ancient custom of common use when friends met for them as a token of mutual love and friendship to kiss each other. The Christians used it also in their ecclesiastical assemblies. It must not be looked upon as a precept obliging all Christians to do the like, but only as directing those that then did use it innocently, chastely, sincerely, and holily. The last part is what is called the benediction. Many pastors through the ages have used this sentence as a benediction for their services. It's an affirmation of the doctrine of the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mentioned. Jesus Christ gave us the gift of salvation by grace alone. Romans 5.15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? His gift of grace is salvation. God loved us so much that he sent his only son to die for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The Holy Spirit is God with us and in us. 1 John 4.13 We know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. 1 John 3.24 Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Do you know that he gave you his spirit? Do you see an evidence of that in your life? Well, that's what Paul's talking about. That we should see the evidence of the Holy Spirit living in us. Hi, this is Sandy Simpson again. Thank you for listening to one of our podcasts. You can come to my website, Apologetic Coordination Team at DeceptionInTheChurch.com or go to our YouTube site called Act TV and check out our DVDs and books, etc. Thank you so much for checking us out.